And now we're coming to this passage. And there are a lot of things going on in this section. Some of them don't really seem to, to fit together or make a lot of sense. And in fact, this first section about the blind man is kind of like, well, wait a minute, what's that doing there? Why is it in there? You know, what's, what's going on? Well, I want to submit to you that this section, all of it, of what we're going to be looking at, almost serves as the hinge of the entire book of Mark. You, how, how many of you have ever taken apart a door and you take it off the, the hinges and there's that metal piece, the hinge? Okay, I, I saw a couple. I thought about actually bringing in an object lesson just because sometimes my mind works in interesting ways. And if you've ever looked at one of those hinges, you've got the two flat pieces of metal and there's a pin that goes right in the middle, right? And that, that pin is the, the object lesson that I, I want to use in regards to this passage. It's a very simple thing. There's nothing, nothing amazing about it. Like it's, it's not intricately designed. It's not something that most people necessarily focus on or think of like, oh, the hinge of a door, that's an amazing thing. It, it just does what it does. And yet, as we get into this, I think we're going to find the, the beauty of, of what Mark is recording for us, and that it is a pivot point in the entire book. We've been looking at who is Jesus. He's, he's a miracle worker. He's a, a teacher. He's one who can interact with thousands and thousands in these crowds and also with the, the individual. He can cast out demons. He can heal the sick. He can even raise from the dead. He can do all kinds of things. He is this amazing, amazing person. We're about to get into the next half of the book, the, the latter half, in which he's on his way to be executed. And that's really the point. That's really the focus of what's going to happen. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And this passage is the section that makes that shift and lets us know. Now, it's not a change for Jesus. I, I, I do want to be clear and obvious. It's not that Jesus had one idea and then, oh, oops, that didn't work. I have to do something else. It, it's not that kind of a, a shift or a pivot. This was always his plan. Always his intention and always his expectation. And Mark is recording for us what he did at the beginning and then that shift into as he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem and to ultimately suffer. And then we have this little bit right at the beginning of this section that deals with a blind man. And it could very easily be attached to what we looked at last week. Um... In fact, Mark is the only one who records it. None of the other Gospels talk about this particular instance of a blind man being healed. And so it seems a little bit odd, a little bit strange. Like, well, Mark, why are you telling us about this and no one else? I don't know if, if you do the same, but when I read through Scripture, I, I have all kinds of questions popping through my head. I would encourage you, actually, this is completely off topic, but I would encourage you as you read through Jot down those questions and then seek the answers. Because most of the time, you, you can find them. And if not, just ask me and I'll have to do some searching and studying because I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I know where to find them. So, we have this example 
starting off in verse 22. It's, it's going to run 22 through 26, in which it, it seems kind of odd that it's there. But I think that it is intentionally put there, and that, that Mark is telling us this for a reason, and that it fits in with the entire overview of what he's been talking about and what he's about to be talking about. In, in verse 22, it says that they came to Bethsaida. Now, obviously, we've got to pause. Where is Bethsaida? Anybody remember or know? Okay, it's on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee. What had just happened? Where, where had they been and what was going on in the last section? It, it is an open book exam, so go ahead and... Okay, the feeding of the 4,000. And then, and then what? Okay, so he fed the 4,000 and then they, they traveled a little bit and the Pharisees showed up and they wanted a sign. Now, we talked about that last week of like, wait a minute. Hadn't the Pharisees seen everything Jesus had done? They should have known this. And they, they'd seen it all, and yet they were spiritually blind. They had no idea who he was. They were unwilling to acknowledge who he was. And so they, they just don't get it. Well, they, the, Jesus and the disciples get back on the ship, and they start off to the other side. And while they're going, they have a conversation. And what happens in that conversation? What, what did they not have? They didn't have bread. And they were distracted by this, and they were focused on that. And Jesus says, guys, it's not about the bread. You, you, are, are you spiritually blind? Um, I want to read it before I, I misquote it. Do you not yet understand, he says, have, uh, verse 18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, do you not remember? And he's, he's trying to educate them. He's trying to get them caught up to speed. He's trying to help them understand exactly who he is. And yet, we ended last week with that question, do you not understand? Well, they finally arrive in Bethsaida. So this is, this is carrying on right after all of that, right after that conversation, right after that gentle rebuke reminder to say, hey guys, I, I think you're missing it. You're not getting it. Why haven't you understood these things yet? I've been with you. You've been seeing everything, and yet you don't see. And they arrive at this town of Bethsaida. Now, the passage is going to refer to it as a village, which when we hear village, we tend to think of a fairly small place. Um, it's the, Bethsaida is kind of an interesting place because it's, it's in that transition from small village to larger town, almost a city. Um, in, this, in this era, it was growing, it was becoming a major place. The, the name itself means um, house of fish or house of the hunter. And so it was a fishing port. It was a place where they would you know, be coming off of the, the sea. It's a, becoming a major port. So it's, it's kind of a city, town, fairly large. And as they arrive, just like has happened repeatedly, Jesus gets somewhere and somebody who has an issue or a problem shows up. And they, they want something from Jesus. This has happened over and over and over again. And so it would be really easy to just, you know, skim through this and, and keep moving on. You know, let's get to the, to the big stuff because that next section. And yet, I think that this section is setting up something for us to understand. They brought a blind man to Jesus. Someone who couldn't see. 
Now, we've seen all kinds of physical issues that people have brought to Jesus. And he has had power over every single one of them. He's been able to deal with each and every one of them. Um, but we haven't seen a blind man yet. We haven't seen anybody who, who could not see in, in the Gospel of Mark that he tells about how that was dealt with. And yet, back in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah 35 verse 5, we are told that the Messiah, the coming one, would uh, be able to give blind their sight. And so, I think one of the reasons that Mark records this is that's what Jesus is about to do. Like, we don't want any doubt or any misunderstanding that Jesus is fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies. But they bring to him this blind man, and what do they want? What, what do they desire of Jesus? Do what? Okay, healing. Specifically, his touch. That, that Jesus would touch him. Okay? Now, as, as you go through the Gospels, Jesus uses a variety of, of methods and means to heal people. And, and he does it in a lot of different ways. This, this group that brings their, what I'm going to assume, and this is Isaac assuming, their friend, um, the, this group that brings the blind man to Jesus, they ask that Jesus touch him. Now, you'll recall there was an episode earlier in which a woman just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and that was enough. That's what she, she expected, knew, trusted, believed would be necessary for her to be saved. Well, this group, they want Jesus to touch him. And so, what is Jesus' response? He takes the blind man. It, it sure looks like he touches him, takes him by the hand, Right? And he brought him out of the village? Now, again, that seems kind of odd. Jesus get, just got there. Why is he taking him out of the village? But these friends, these, these individuals, it says uh, back in verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him. That, that idea of asking or requesting, that's come up quite a few times as well. Uh, starting back in chapter 1, we see people bringing um, ones to, to Christ to be healed, to have all of these things. I, I made a list just of a few of them in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 40, in chapter 5, verse 10, and verse 12, and verse 17, and verse 23. There are people asking, begging, requesting, imploring. That idea of coming with a request to Jesus... And these, these individuals, they just ask him, would you touch this man who's blind? Well, Jesus takes him by the hand. Did that heal him? No. Like, but when the, when the lady just wanted to touch the hem of his garment, she was instantly healed. And, and they want him to touch him, and he takes him by the hand, and it doesn't heal him. And so, you know, as you're reading through this, you ought to start being asking, like, some of these questions. Wait, wait a minute. That doesn't seem... What, what's going on? Well, it says he brought him out of the village. So he took him away to a different area. Why? Why would he do that? Well, that's his plan. That's his intention. Jesus, ultimately, we're going to find out Jesus can heal however he chooses to, however he wants to. And, and in this, he decides, I'm going to take him out of the village. And it says, after spitting on his eyes, which, again, that, that ought to be like, wait, wait a minute, what? 
why is he, I mean, it, the, the word there is, can be on or even in. It, it, the idea is he spit in his eye. Like, I thought that was a bad thing. I thought that was, was mean and rude. You, you, that's not something you do, right? And yet, that's what he did. Jesus spit in his eye. And he laid his hands on him. And he asked him, do you see anything? Now, you'll notice I'm bringing up a lot of strange things. A lot, uh, like, wait a minute, that's odd. That doesn't, that doesn't fit with what I would expect. With, with what I think ought to or would normally happen. And yet, that's how he did it. And this is the only time that we're going to see Jesus ask, did my healing work? Like, I mean, that's, that's what he's asking here. Do you see anything? Did, did it work? Now, obviously, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't know or that he was curious or like, ooh, maybe it works, maybe it didn't. That, that's not what's going on. But he is giving an opportunity for this man to respond and he asks them, him this question, do you see anything? He spit in his eye, he laid his hands on him, which is basically what they were asking for. And he asks him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Now, if, if you read comments and commentaries and things like that, you're going to run into some arguments about this man. Was he blind from birth, or had he been able to see? Because, you know, we're not told much of anything about him. He's just this individual who cannot see. There are some who think that, that he could see before because he knows what trees look like, except he also could have just felt them and been like, you know, this is a tree and it seems odd. So it doesn't tell us. There's a lot of things that it doesn't tell us. And yet he's able to see a little bit, kind of, kind of hazy, a little bit foggy. I, I can see people moving around. It looks like trees. It, the indication is that he's only partway healed. Again, this ought to almost be sounding alarms in your mind. Like, wait a minute, what is going on? Jesus, every time before this, he touches someone to heal them. Boom, they're healed. No ifs, no ands, no buts. There were even people who he, he said it from here and way over there they were healed. What is going on? Why is this happening? Well, it, verse 25, we're, I, I know I'm asking a lot of questions. I, I think I have some answers. We'll get to those in a minute. I want to finish out this section. Verse 25 then again, he laid his hands on his eyes. And he, being the man, looked intently. And he was restored. And he began to see very clearly. And he sent him to his home. Now, Jesus sent the man to his home. We're, we're going to pause there. We'll get to that last phrase in just a moment. But Jesus lays his hands on his eyes again. And this time he is healed. And these, these phrases, this idea, he looked intently, he was restored, he began to see everything clearly. There is no doubt that this man is healed. He can see now. So why would it take a process? Why would this be different? Why, why did Jesus do it this way? Well, I mean, obviously, the simple, basic answer is because that's the way Jesus wanted to. And that's okay. And I, I think that we should be ready and willing to accept that. If that's how Jesus wants to do it, then that's fine. 
I think that Mark is recording it in this, in this bigger narrative of, of everything that's going on, of what we just saw happening with the disciples, of what we're about to see happen with Peter. I think that this fits within the entire context. And I, I know that we broke last week before getting to this, but it fits both sides because it's a continuous flow of, of the narrative, of the story of what's happening. I think one of the examples that Jesus is, is bringing up and that, that Mark is wanting to make sure is known is this idea of spiritual blindness. He has just gotten after his disciples because they don't see, they don't understand, they're not getting it. And yet he is patient and loving and kind and he puts up with it and he has dealt with it. And, and he's almost creating a picture here of that same idea where somebody starts to get an idea and, and they kind of see and understand a little bit, but, but not quite. It's a little fuzzy. It's not there yet. And yet Jesus is then able to bring him complete healing, complete vision, so that he can see very well. And, and he's no longer blind. He's no longer unable to see. And I think that in the, in the scheme of this whole narrative, we're going to find out that this is the same thing that Peter deals with. See, you, you already know what's about to happen. We've, we've heard it. Peter is going to make this great declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And, and that's, that's like this idea here of like, well, I, I can see a little bit. I kind of. And then he's going to turn around and do something that shows, no, he doesn't actually get it entirely. But does that mean that Jesus is done with him? Like, nope. Nope, you missed it. You're, you're, I, I tried, I laid my hand, I've given, and, and you just missed it, so forget it. No, no, by no means. Instead, Jesus is going to continue to work with Peter and, and the other disciples, but Peter, who's going to end up doing some really dumb things through the rest of the book, uh, he's going to deny Jesus, he's going to betray and, and not follow through. And he, I mean, Peter's an amazing guy. He's so fun to watch. And, and Jesus is going to continue to work with him and continue to love him and continue to develop him. And ultimately, it's not going to be until after the resurrection that, Jesus actually, or that Peter actually fully sees and understands these things that are going on. So, here, here's my point. We'll, we'll summarize that whole uh, initial section. This is yet another example of Jesus doing what he does miracles beyond miracles, proving that he is the Christ. Just like every single miracle we've seen so far, fulfillment of the prophecy that, that the coming Messiah was going to be able to have power over all of these things. Just like Isaiah 50, or 35, 5 said, he's, he's giving sight to the blind man. That's, that is the primary focus of this. That's what's going on. I also think that by the conjunction of where it's at, the way that Mark is telling it, that he's wanting to bring up this idea to the reader's mind that there's this, this lack of understanding about who Jesus is that has been happening, that continues to happen, and that he is going to fix and going to work on. But that idea of spiritual blindness that the Pharisees had, that the disciples had, that that is a process that has to be healed, that has to be fixed. And Jesus is the only one that can take away that spiritual blindness as well. And so 
when, when we see this idea, it's almost as if it's put in as, a, as a, another parable, as this, this teaching moment, this idea that the, the disciples were blind. They didn't get it. They're starting to see a little bit, just like this man, but they're not there yet. And eventually, they're going to see completely and totally, but that's not going to happen until after the resurrection. And in the interim, well, Jesus still has some teaching and some training and some developing that he's got to do. And so we're going to take a look at what that looks like. And what is it that, that they see a little bit, but they don't fully get? Well, verse 27, it says that they, they went out, that Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, where, where is that? North, further north. It's about 25 miles. So it's, it's a stretch. It's a ways to walk. It's not like this insurmountable distance, but it might have taken them a couple of days to, to walk this distance. And so they, they set out. They had just arrived. Oh, I, I skipped half of a verse. Sorry, let's go back. They had just arrived at Bethsaida, and as soon as they got there, they had this interaction with this man, and then they leave town. It, it says Jesus takes him by the hand and brought him out of the village. And they get out and he tells the man, verse 26, he sent him to his house saying, do not even enter the village. Don't go back into town. Don't go and tell them, which really, again, that ought to cue in our minds like, wait a minute, why is that? Well, that's something that we've been seeing over and over and over again throughout the gospel of Mark, where Jesus would do something and he would tell them, don't say anything. Don't make a big deal out of this. Don't tell people yet. Um, we had examples of that in chapter 1, verse 44, in chapter 5, verse 43, in chapter 7, 36. We see it again here. We're going to see it again in just a moment. There's something about Jesus's timing where he doesn't want them to go out and make the announcements. And, and really, it all comes down to Jesus is doing things his way, not somebody else's way. And so he, he is saying, don't, don't even go into the village. Don't make a big deal out of this. Don't proclaim it. There are crowds coming and, and surrounding Jesus all the time anyway. And, and for some reason, in some way, he doesn't want certain things announced at the wrong time. He wants them done his way. And that's okay. He's, he is the one who's in charge. He can say, do it this way, don't do it that way, whatever the case might be. So at this point, he says, don't even enter the village. He just sends the man home. And the, the fact that he sends the man home without his, his, the people that brought him to guide him along the way kind of indicates to us, well, apparently the guy can see well enough to, to go home. He's been healed completely and he's on his way home. Well, Jesus then leaves there. And, and that's where it says they go to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which, like I said, is about 25 miles-ish north. Now, it does say villages, so it's, it's kind of the surrounding area. We're not told exactly where he's going, but simply that they are continuing to travel. And along the way, they have a conversation. And it seems, it looks like this is a continuous conversation. It, it goes on for a while. He's asking them some questions. They're interacting. They're, they're going. This is something that Jesus has done. He's, he's teaching along the way. We get to uh, verse 27. They're on the way, and he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? Now, that's a big question. 
Who is Jesus? Messiah? The Son of God? The Savior? We, we kind of have an idea of who Jesus is. Jesus is asking, what do the people say? The, the others, the crowds, the ones that we've been interacting with, what do they say? So you've given, us, you've, you've given me, I'm going to say the right answer, but you've given me the answers of, of you. What do people in the world around us today say about who is Jesus? A prophet? A good teacher? A historical figure? A what? I'm not sure what that is. A crutch. Okay, a crutch that people lean on. Yeah. The world around us is going to say a lot of different things about who Jesus is. Jesus himself is, is having this ongoing dialogue, this conversation, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, they answered. They told him. And, and we're going to find that there are three options that they point to, three things that um, people have said about him. Number one, they say that he's John the Baptist. Now, you'll recall John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ, the one who came to make way, make the paths straight, make people aware of the coming of the Messiah. And so they're saying, well, you're, you're John the Baptist. We actually saw this previously back in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, where Herod, the, the ruler of the area, thought that, that this must be John the Baptist reincarnated that he's come back from the dead, the, the idea there being almost to haunt uh, Herod, that, but that's not who Jesus was, that had nothing to do with it. But uh, some people are of the mindset of the idea that Jesus was John the Baptist. Great guy, amazing mi- mission and purpose, forerunner for the Messiah. That's not who Jesus is. Others say Elijah. Who was Elijah. Okay, an Old Testament prophet, very significant one, lot of miracles and major things. And so people are looking at, at Jesus and like, oh, he's doing miracles. He's doing things like what we saw back in the Bible. This must be Elijah. And, and there were actually even prophecies that Elijah would come again, would come back. We're, we're actually going to get to that, I believe, in chapter 10 of Mark. So I'm, I'm going to hold off on that. But some people are, are looking and saying, okay, you know, all of these miracles, all of these, these teachings, they must be uh, Elijah from the Old Testament. Third option that they present is others said that he's one of the prophets. Just maybe not a specific one, not the forerunner of the Messiah, not the, um, this major Elijah character, but, but some other prophet, just like the prophets of old. Now, what do you notice about these three options? None of them is right. Thank you. Where was that? Uh, out here. All right. Thank you. Exactly. None of them's right. Notice none of them recognize who Jesus actually is. And so he continues questioning them. Like I said, this is an ongoing dialogue. He continued questioning them. Who do you say that I am? Peter. You got to love him. He's a great, great character. He, do a character study of Peter sometimes. He... he he can put his foot in his mouth like none other, and he can say the smartest things ever. Peter, answering, said to him, You are the Christ. Now, 
we've got to stop there. We've got to pause because he's making this declaration. Um, and we are so used to that word, that idea, Jesus Christ, that in our minds, I, I don't know if anybody else does this, but I, I know it's a thing, that becomes a first and last name. Like Isaac Jack, right? Christ is not his name. It's a title. It's something, something more than that. The, the word itself, Christ, um, is a Greek word that's a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. And it simply meant anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, this word is used in multiple places to refer to priests and kings and prophets and ones who were anointed for something in particular. That said, as time went on and as the, the history of the Old Testament developed, God made certain promises to David about a king that would come of his line. And, and you can find a lot of that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, really starts with those promises that David is going to have a perpetual line, um, a, a king coming from him that will reign forever and ever. And that becomes a major promise and a major focus of the Old Testament. After the, the kingdom is divided, um, they start to have more and more prophets and prophecies about this coming kingdom who would reign forever in justice and righteousness. And this was, this was a focus of the prophets. And thus, those who read the Bible, read the Old Testament, who were studying the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the people, the Jews, they were looking for that. They were anticipating and looking for that coming Messiah, that coming Christ, the one who would fulfill the Old Testament. The problem was, they weren't looking for Jesus. That's why none of those suggestions, none of those options that are listed are right, because they were looking for a military leader, a political ruler. Depending on which group you look at, the, there's all kinds of different ideas that the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the different groups and factions, they would come up with different expectations. Basically, they all boil down to they're looking for some mighty, powerful, big, awesome you know, muscle man who's going to come in and take over and take names and just be in charge of everything. And that's not who Jesus is. That's not what Jesus did. And so they miss it. They're, they're spiritually blind to see these things. They don't understand who Jesus is. But Peter, wonderful, amazing Peter, you are the Christ. You are the fulfillment of all of that. You're the one we've been looking for and waiting for and anticipating and longing for. Even though everybody else is saying that you're going to be this, this powerful political ruler or military ruler. No, I know you are exactly who we're anticipating. In fact, in the, in the record of this over in Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus is going to let Peter know that is from God. Men didn't reveal that to you. God is the one who told you that. You understand the things of God, and that, that is, is really cool and really powerful. See, they were all looking for military leader. They weren't looking for a suffering servant. The issue is, 
If you go through the Old Testament and the prophecies and the things that are pointing to Christ, you're going to see more and more and more. Isaiah 53 is a suffering servant, not this, this military leader. Now, is Jesus going to rule and reign forever and ever? Oh, yeah. Is he going to set up his, his kingdom on earth? Most definitely. All of that is true, but they're only looking for that, and they're not looking for the entirety of it. But Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And Peter got it. Peter said, that's exactly who you are. You are the Christ. Good job, Peter. Well done. Verse 30, and he warned them to tell no one about him. Wait, what? Peter just made this amazing declaration. He recognized that you, over in Matthew, Jesus even says, this is from God. You have, have figured it out. This is great. And then Jesus says, don't tell people about him. Seems kind of strange and odd. Again, this goes back to that idea that Jesus is doing things in his time, in his way, under his process to achieve the right ends, the right goals. And so he doesn't want them to make this announcement yet. And, and there's a big part of yet in this. And so eventually we're going to get to that. After the resurrection, there, there are things that they are able to go out and declare and make known, and, and it's great and wonderful and amazing. Right now, he warns them, do not tell anyone. And that brings us to verse 31. It says that he began to teach them. Now, it's, it's interesting I don't, want to, I don't want to go too far on, on Greek, but this is one of those that I think is, is very interesting. You go through the Greek language, and there are two ways that they can say something began. A lot of the verbs have that idea of, okay, he started to do this type of a thing. And that's, that's just kind of a general indication that, okay, he, he, he did this, and it had a starting point and continued on. Or it can have a, a specific word in it that says, this is the start of something that's going to continue. That's what's used here. This idea that he began to teach them. He's going to start something new right here. That's part of why I say this is like a hinge point in the, in the book. Because up to this point, Jesus has been teaching. He's been doing miracles. He's been doing all of these things. And this, he began to teach them, is like, all right, I, I've taught you a lot. I've got a new thing to teach you, and you, you need to get it. You need to understand this. This is really, really important for them to get. What is he going to teach them? What did he begin to teach them right here? Okay, what's going to happen to him? That's, that's the summary of it. That, that the Son of Man, which is referring to Christ, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. What's Peter's reaction to that? <laughs> okay, okay, hang on, hang on. Let's, let's go back. Peter just said, you are the Christ. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And now Jesus is, is starting to teach them, to proclaim to them, to help them understand, this is why I came. This is what it's all about. All of this stuff that's happened, all of these miracles, all of these signs, all of these wonders that I've been doing, they point to me as the Messiah so that I can do what God wants, what I came for, what's expected, what's required. Namely, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And, and I think that, that 
Jesus kind of starts telling them what those things are. Not just, yeah, I'm going to suffer, but kind of giving them some information about we're about to head towards Jerusalem and I'm going to get arrested and bad things are going to happen and it's not going to be pleasant. We don't know exactly what, but he's going to suffer many things is what he's telling them. And not only am I going to suffer, but I'm going to be rejected. Rejected by the very ones who should have known, who should have seen. The ones who had already been asking him for signs and miracles the ones who he'd already given time and time and time again proof of who he was, and they refused to accept it. They decided that they were going to ascribe it to Beelzebub, to Satan himself, to the, to the adversary of God, instead of acknowledging, okay, you are from God, like they should have. He's kind of already been rejected, but he's going to be even more so rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Now, the elders are like the, the older men, the rulers, the ones who are in charge, the ones that are, are being followed there in their society. The chief priest, oh, sorry, elders, elders would often refer to like the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, that kind of an idea. The chief priests, these are the ones of the priest class who were in charge, the leadership. They were the ones who were, were guiding the worship time and the scribes. We've already dealt with the scribes a little bit. They're the ones who, who were able to read and write and proclaim the word of God. And all of these people are getting ready to reject Jesus. And Jesus knows it. He knows what's coming. And he did it willingly. It just blows me away to even think about. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by these and be killed. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. He is on his way. And this, this point in the book is that hinge, that swing from being in the northern part of Galilee, doing these miracles, crowds adore him, they're following him around, he's, he's doing great things, to being rejected and injured and killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what he's there for. He is ready and willing to do it, and now he is teaching his disciples, letting them know, hey guys, here's what's coming. Here's what's about to happen. And Peter, <laughs> oh, sorry, verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly. D don't miss this. This is obvious. Up to this point, Jesus is taught in parables. He's done things to, you know, he's letting it be known to some and others aren't necessarily going to catch it. They're not going to understand and, and whatever. That's, that was his teaching style. Here, he is making it crystal clear. He wants them to understand this is what's coming. No ifs, no ands, no buts about it. This is what's about to happen. He was stating it, the matter plainly. And so Peter who just got done saying, you are the Christ. You are the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You are the anointed ruler who will serve everything in justice and righteousness. You are the fulfillment of that Old Testament expectation of the Messiah King. Who's the king? He's the one in charge, right? He's the one who makes the rules, who, who sets the guy. He takes Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, 
This is a, an interesting word. It's actually going to be repeated in just a little bit. And it's a fairly severe word. It's not just like, uh, Jesus, I, I, I think you missed something. I don't think you got it. No, it, it's not that kind of a thing. This is, Peter's like, no, that ain't happening. You are not going to go to Jerusalem and get beat up and killed and reject that, that no. Peter saw that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet he, he still didn't get it. He's still a little bit fuzzy, a little bit hazy on, on who is Jesus really. What is the Messiah really? Because he thinks that he can, he, he can come in and tell the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the ruler of all, no, no, I'm not going to allow you to do what you came to do. I'm not going to let you be who you're supposed to be. And so Jesus, turning around, verse 33, but turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebukes Peter. It's that same word for rebuke. It's that same level of severity. Now, why, why does it say, but turning around and seeing his disciples, you know, what's going on? Is it that, that Jesus recognizes that they overheard this or is it that Jesus is saying, hey, I don't want them to miss it because Peter often is the representative of the disciples and he'll say the things that everybody else is thinking and not willing to say. I don't know for sure exactly why is it that, that Jesus turning around and seeing them then makes this other than to include everybody and let everyone know. All of the disciples have to get this figured out. Whether, whether they were thinking the same thing and just not willing to say it, or whether they overheard it and Jesus doesn't want them to be misled. Regardless, Jesus wants everybody in that group to understand something. He rebuked Peter very severely, very strongly. As, as strongly as Peter had tried to tell Jesus, no, you can't do that, Jesus tells Peter, yeah, no, we are not playing that game. And he uses a very, very severe phrase. Get behind me, Satan. Now, I, I want to make sure that we understand he's not saying that Peter is literally Satan. Like, Jesus knows that Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, is a real character, a real person. Peter is not that. But what Peter is saying is from Satan. That, that word Satan is accuser, adversary, one who is going to make these statements and, and things that are false and lies. And, and so he is, he is letting Peter know, like, no, no, be gone, get back, go away, get back in line, figure this stuff out. You are not speaking right. I think that it's, it's interesting if we remember in Matthew 16, 17, Jesus had said that that statement that uh, Jesus is the Christ was from God that we also recognize here. This statement that Peter's making that, no, no, you can't do that, is not from God. It's the opposite. It's from Satan. And he, he clarifies that at the end of verse 33. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Jesus rebukes Peter. Very severe, very clear. He wants Peter and his disciples to know what's coming. 
because Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And those, those words, I'm, I keep using them, they're the same word in two different languages. It means the same thing. Jesus is all of that, and he wants it to be known. And this idea that he's not going to go and do exactly what he came for, that idea, stopping him from going to the cross, that is from Satan. Satan is going to try and interfere and interrupt and mess up God's plans. He's done it ever since the beginning. He's going to continue to do it all the way to the end. And we know who wins. Jesus is always going to be victorious over Satan. And so he says, Peter, you're wrong. You are way wrong. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. What must be done, must be done. If Jesus doesn't go to the cross like he had planned, there's no hope of salvation. And yet, as the Messiah, as the anointed King of kings and Lord of lords, the ruler of the ages, the one who will reign supreme and internally, Jesus has to go through this process to achieve his goals. And so he's letting it be known, this is God's plan. And no one is going to interfere with that. No one is going to stop that. No matter how much we may want to or desire it or anything else, Jesus is not going to let anything interfere with him doing exactly what God desired to be done. So what? You know, oftentimes when I, when I come to the, towards the end... I give a so what, some kind of an application. What do we do with this? And I think that it's very important as you study scripture to identify, okay, based on what I know now of who God is and what he's done, what does he expect of me? What does he want me to to either know or do as a result of this passage? Well, a lot of the time there's a specific item, action, activity, something that, that just comes from the passage. It's like, okay, you know, we need to go and do likewise. In this one, I find it a little bit more challenging. My goal is to simply draw out what, what does it say and what should I do as a result. I think that there's a couple of ideas that we, can, that we can glean from this. Number one is to avoid spiritual blindness. Jesus is the one who healed the man, gave him his sight, helped him to see. Jesus is the one who revealed himself to his disciples, helped them to understand. And even though they didn't get it, he kept working with them, kept developing them, kept drawing them along to help them reach that point where they saw clearly who he was. And not just their own ideas or their own thoughts or their own desires about who Jesus ought to be in their minds, but actually who Jesus truly was, the Messiah, the promised one, exactly as God had intended him to be. So, number one, avoid spiritual blindness. Number two, we need to trust the real Jesus. Not the Jesus that others may say. The, the idea that, oh, well, he was just a good teacher, or just a, a prophet, or that he was a great historical figure, or, 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 or. Or even sometimes within Christian realms, there are ideas about who God is that, oh, he's only loving, he just loves everybody, and let's not talk about justice. That's too scary. Or the opposite side, well, let's just talk about fire and brimstone and, and God's punishment on everybody and forget to tell about the love of Christ 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We need to understand the true, real Jesus. Who did God declare himself to be? And we need to make sure that we understand that. And it's really easy to, to get off track, just like Peter did, just like the disciples did, and start thinking our own way about things. But I want to encourage us to go back to what does Scripture actually say? What does the whole counsel of the Word of God say? That's what we need to hold to. That's what we need to focus on. And that's what we need to tell others about as well. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, what, a, what an amazing passage. What an amazing thing that you did with your disciples. So many times they don't get it. They're slow to understand. And Lord, I, I identify with that a lot. I understand that, that sometimes it should be right there in front of you and you miss it. But Lord, we see this, this glimmer with Peter. He knew who you were. He may not have all the details figured out, but he made that proclamation. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know you, to truly know you, not just what people might have said about you or, or ideas that we've, we've heard some other time, but to, to have a personal relationship with you, to spend time in your words studying and learning and growing and understanding. Lord, help us to love you as you love us. Help us to know you as you deserve to be known. We love you and thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.